Hello and welcome to Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance and defining happiness and success. My name is Graham Alcott, I'm your host for the show and on this episode I'm talking to Benjamin Spall. Benjamin is the author of a book called My Morning Routine and the founder of the blog of the same name. So we're going to be talking all, all about morning routines, how to get going and how to start your day right. Before we do that, if you're interested in me helping to revamp your productivity, I'm going to be doing some one-day masterclass events this year. The first one is on the 20th of March. It's in London. It's in the Business Design Centre in Islington, to be more precise. So the 20th of March, if you want to come along, it's a limited thing. So there's going to be 25 places, uh, keeping it fairly intimate so that I can get around everybody and make some real changes to the way that you work on the day. Um, but it's all things Productivity Ninja delivered by me and it's the 20th of March, uh, the first one in London. So if you want to get a ticket for that, go on to Eventbrite, just search Graham Alcott Productivity Masterclass, the thing will come up and we'll also put the, the link to that in the show notes at getbeyondbusy.com as well. So come and let me revamp your productivity, kickstart your 2019 and make a big difference to the way that you work all in a day. So it's a, a one day thing in London, 20th of March. Uh, go and have a look online for that. I have been out and about doing a lot of events over the last uh, couple of weeks or so. Uh, it's been a pretty hectic start to 2019 for me. So um, apologies, this is the first podcast of the year because I've just been here, there and everywhere. Uh, did a great uh, couple of events in Oxford last week. Really enjoyed my time with Action for Happiness in London as well. They had about 450 people sign up for that. So it was a really big one. And um, quite a few people who uh, listened to the podcast came and said hi, which is always really nice. Uh, so that continues over the next uh, few weeks. And really, it's all to do with the, the fifth anniversary release of How to Be a Productivity Ninja, which is going pretty well, actually. We've had some good sales figures in. Uh, for the first couple of weeks of the year and just really trying to give that a push there's a whole new chapter in the book which talks about how to how to stop messing about on your phone and a lot of the kind of theory stuff is pretty much the same but I've just kind of given it a bit of a facelift in terms of some of the technology in there and just brought it a little bit more up to date so um, if you see a copy of how to be a productivity ninja the new edition with the green cover if you see that in a wh smith travel or uh, in a Waterstones or something, I'd love you to tweet me and tell me where you're spotting the book in the wild. Uh, you can do that on Twitter at Graham Alcott or on Instagram at Graham Alcott. And yeah, just love to hear your stories of where you're seeing the book. And if you know of someone who really needs the book, please buy the new one from Amazon or anyone else because uh, everything we do at the moment just gives that a little bit of a boost and a little bit of a uh, kind of help it, its way up the chart. So please go and do that by the new edition of How to Be a Productivity Ninja. So let's get into this one. So what was really interesting about this is um, Ben is actually, he's originally from the UK, but has been living out in San Francisco for the last few years. So we did this one. This is the first one I've ever done on Beyond Busy where I've used Zencaster and done it over the web rather than face-to-face. -face. And um, it's a good learning experience for me because I've done lots of podcasts online where I've been the guest on the show. It's the first time I've done it hosting and there's a couple of things that are slightly different where you just don't get that kind of body language and eye, eye contact kind of sense of who's going to speak at what time and you know just kind of some of those those uh, non-verbal cues uh, it's a bit more difficult to follow so um, that was a challenge but I think it was a pretty good first attempt at doing it online. Uh, this is a really interesting conversation. So uh, Ben obviously talks about some of the learning he has received from the wisdom of very many 
successful people and their morning routines. And it's not all about five and six a.m. starts, although we do talk about uh, the whole issue of that and why that really leaves a lot of people cold and uh, the cynicism that goes along with some of those kind of early morning things. Uh, but some really interesting little, you know, tidbits and just things I'd not thought to start my day with. Uh, some very interesting stats in the book as well about some of the kind of average times that people start their day and how much sleep people get and all that sort of thing. And we talk a lot about sleep in this episode and getting sleep right, getting the start of the day right, and then letting everything else fall in around it. And we start by talking actually, um, so the book, My Morning Routine, uh, Ben has co-authored with a guy called Michael Zander. And um, what was really interesting for me was just comparing notes on that whole idea of collaborating on a book and having a co-author thing because it's the first time I've done it actually this year with um, the Workfield book which I'll talk about which comes out in March Uh, but yeah that was a first for me so it's nice to kind of hear um, his story on that that whole sort of collaboration but not face-to-face and actually collaborating from a distance because Michael's actually based in Germany so you hear all about all of that really interesting episode let's get straight into it this is my conversation with Benjamin Spall We are rolling, and I'm with Ben Spall. How are you doing, Ben? I'm good. How are you, Graham? I'm good, thanks. Um, you're in uh, you're in California right now. Yeah, so I, I'm British, like yourself, but I'm um, I've been living here in San Francisco for about three and a half years now. And um, what that means is it's my afternoon and and your morning, um, which is a pretty uh, good place to start because your blog and book is called My Morning Routine. So um, how's your morning going so far? Yeah, so I, I, I'm i not as early as some of the people in the book. So for instance, we, we interview a general who gets up at four o'clock every day. I got up at seven today, which is a little a little bit earlier than normal. I'm usually up at about 7.30. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm getting right down into it. I got my, I got my setup ready and I'm uh, ready to go. And I noticed in the book, one of your big questions is alarm clock or no mm-hmm. alarm clock. So uh, what's what's your style? Uh, I pretty much, this is interesting. So today I needed the alarm clock, but I pretty much always set one. But more often than not, I'm awake, you know, just before it because our bodies tend to know if we get up at the same time every day. Uh, that's why the whole phenomenon of, you know, you wake up a minute before your alarm or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of have one to hedge against oversleeping, but typically it doesn't wake me up. Cool. Um, so let's dive in and talk about the book and um, the blog. So you've been doing the blog for a few years. So the blog is called My Morning Routine. Yeah, mymorningroutine.com. We've been doing it since uh, December 2012. So yeah, six six something years now and it's like every week you interview somebody about their morning routine and you have kind of set questions right so how do you, how many have you done so far do you know yeah so we have a i think i think i, I edited uh, yesterday's one yesterday no tomorrow's one yesterday and i think we're up to 315 320 something like that so so it's uh been going a while we we say we've never missed a week that's actually a lie we've we, we missed one week in the first year okay uh we had no one to fill it but since then we've pretty much uh, every single week published a new person nice um, and tell me where the inspiration came from. So were you sat there uh, with a really regimented morning routine yourself and thinking, I wonder if, if other people are doing this? Or were you sat there with no routine and thinking, I need to learn from people? Or where did the, where did the kind of curiosity come from originally? Yes, yeah, so it was actually quite the opposite. So I actually do the website and the book with my co-website person, co-author, Michael Zander, who's um, he's German, he's in Germany. And he came to me with the idea of doing something around mornings 
And this is 2012. And at the same time, I was thinking about doing something, something meaning a website blog or something about, um, you know, habits, the habits we have every day. Mm. And we figured a great way to kind of incorporate this because we really want to work together on something. He's kind of a product design guy. I'm more of a copywriter and editor. So we wanted to work together. And we were like, okay, we could just ask people about the morning routines, what they do in the morning. And back in 2012, and it's kind of unbelievable now because it's such a big topic right now. But back in 2012, this really wasn't being talked about that much at all. Yeah. So it was a pretty, um, it was a pretty quick turnaround. You know, we just put up a WordPress site. We interviewed a couple of our friends who were a little bit reluctant in the beginning, uh, but we wanted to get a couple, a couple interviews up there. And yeah, from there, we just, as you say, we just interviewed a new person every week. Um, over time, these, these type of people changed. So in the beginning, we were getting suggestions. And now we get a few suggestions, but we're mainly pitching people, uh, you know, trying to get more famous people because it's kind of interesting like that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been, it's been a great process. And of course, out of it, we got the book. So that was, that was pretty fantastic. Yeah. And so, I mean, the books really, you know, it, I really like the style of it and the way that it reads because it's very bite-sized with all of the, um, like all of the different examples of different people's morning routines, but then you've got these kind of key themes that, that pull it together and give people a chance to reflect on their own routines, I guess, as well. So I really like, I really like the way you put it together. Yeah, that's exactly right. We, it, it, it's interesting, like writing the book, it was very difficult for a while. Like I had to have several calls with our editor to figure out the best way to lay it out. Cause on the website, we just have interviews, whereas in the book, we, we eventually, we broke it down into chapters. So you have a, like a chapter on sleep, you have a chapter on morning workouts, on meditation, on uh, self care. Uh, and we had to find a way to break it down. So you were really kind of getting these nuggets of wisdom at the end of every chapter. So the way we do it, for example, back to the, the sleep chapter is we list, you know, five, six, I can't remember exactly how many, um, interviews, so the routines with people and all of these kind of, they, they speak heavily about sleep. And then after that, we'll have kind of these bite-sized nuggets and information taken from those routines and also from every single routine of the 315 odd that we have right now. And the idea there was to really distill it down. So, you know, we've been doing the website for about six years now. Really, we looked, uh, we looked back through every single routine and we kind of, kind of took out the pieces that were mentioned time and time again. And then we verified this. We wanted to make sure that this was helpful. Um, but if it was, we kind of, we put it in. Nice. And before we get into some of the specific people and stories, how did you and Michael meet? So you were in the UK and he was in Germany. Yeah, no, this is, this is a funny story. And I'll, I'll be honest with you. We actually only met for the first time in person uh, six months ago. Oh, wow. Okay. I know, I know. So actually the whole process of the book, uh, we were just, you know, remotely working. Yeah. Um, but the, the way that we met online, it was just, I think for a while we were just, you know, through Twitter or something. And we were just like buddies and like working out, um, you know, we're working through ideas and then eventually he, ca he came to me with this idea and um like i said we kind of I, I was kind of on a similar mind i've recently read um the book the power of habit by charles duhigg yeah great book yeah it's a fantastic book and um yes yeah, so anyone anyone who reads our book certainly read that as well mm. but i just read that so the whole habit idea was really in my mind and then um yeah we really hit it off like we worked well together so um yeah, that's how we kind of got into it. Yeah, there's a lovely thing about um, habits in the Charles Duhigg book, which is to do with his different kind of, I can't remember them all right now, but all the different techniques to build habits. So there's things like the keystoning in there and, and, and sort of anchoring one behavior into the next behavior and all these kind of different things. It's kind of really interesting to, I guess, apply some systematized thinking to something that often people just think of as being 
either I have good habits or bad habits and I will resolve to do this or whatever, like just to really break it down into the psychology of it. I thought, I thought it was really amazing. Yeah. And as a very simple example of that, uh, my wife, this month, she is doing a, so it's January as we're recording and she's doing a kind of no social media January. Okay. And, um, to help with that. So she's, you know, she's done really well so far. She really hasn't been on it apart from LinkedIn, which she's, you know, still doing her work. Um, but she, um, puts so on her screen, she would normally have LinkedIn or not LinkedIn. She would normally have Instagram. And then she put the Kindle app in that place. So she removed Instagram, put the Kindle app. And then for, for about a week afterwards, you know, she found she was automatically hitting that button and it was like, okay, well, I guess I'll guess I'll read part of this book instead. Nice. And, um, that was a great way to, as, as Duhigg talks about kind of replace the habit. So she couldn't just get rid of that habit right away. But like if she replaced it with a healthy habit, it was a good way to kind of, you still got that, you still got that reward. It's not as fun of a reward, you could argue, but you still get that reward. So it kind of helps it, um, helps the habit like stick around, but in a more positive way. Yeah. And also, I guess there's that sort of reminder, isn't there, when you open Kindle of like, I should be doing something more useful than just right, exactly. you know, better than doing nothing is the kind of the reminder of the inducement of something much better. No, that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, so you met. Six months ago, the book had come out before that. So tell me about co-authoring. I've just, I've just co-authored a book, um, with Colette Hennigan, who is a nutritionist and was my nutritionist. Okay. Uh, for a while. And we've co-authored a book called Work Fuel, which is the Productivity Ninja's Guide to Nutrition. Mm. Um, it comes out in March. And I have to say, I found co-authoring much harder than I expected to do, despite the fact that me and Colette get on really well. It just feels like just taking one person's ideas in one person's brain and then putting that for me with somebody else's thoughts and, and somebody else's brain, there's just always, it feels like the communication needed is much more than just mm-hmm. one person thinking on their own. It kind of feels like it, it uh, sort of gets like it, you know, I, I can imagine if you were an academic authoring a book with four people, it would just get exponentially slower as you try and get four people's brains together. Did you, you have, did you have the same kind of experience with that? Cause it, obviously a lot of what you do is, is solo writing, right? Yeah. So it, it was, yeah, it was definitely, it was definitely a little bit difficult in that, but I definitely think it was, uh, it was more powerful in the end in that we could have those, you know, we could have those discussions. We could decide things and I could think something was done and he, you know, thought it definitely wasn't done. Yeah. And in the end, yeah. I think we have a better book because of that, you know, a better product. Um, but one, I guess part of the good thing was because I, you know, I am British and he's German, even though I would take all of his ideas into account and I would definitely change stuff up. Um, ultimately, if there's a, you know, a squabble about a particular word or something like that, ultimately he would defer to me the same way if we we're writing in German, I would defer to him. Uh, okay. Interesting. That was extremely helpful. Yeah. But no, it is very different. Like for example, with our copy editor, she could make changes after we wrote everything. But for the most part, apart from certain things, uh, we had the final say, but when you, when you are co-offering, you kind of don't always have that person who has the final say. So you kind of have to, uh, really work hard to make sure that you're both happy with it. Yeah. I was really inspired by, and I used with Colette for the book, one rule, which was uh, a thing I heard from Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant when they were writing The Office. And it was basically um, like, no one has a veto. So if, if, there's, a, if there's a joke that, um, that one of the two of them don't like, then it doesn't go in the show. So, so it can't just be like, one person likes it and the other person compromises. It's like, if, if right. so I suppose, it's, I suppose it's like they both have a veto is more the, more the rule, but just, the, the, just this idea that everything they put in the book has to be like totally verified and totally, and, and they both have to be totally comfortable with and anything that's compromised is just automatically gone. No, I think that's good. And I just thought that was such a great way of thinking about it. And 
like I think we've probably got a better book uh, between myself and Colette by, as you say, like that process. It, it does take back and forth, but you do get somewhere slightly better. But yeah, I do think it, it, it surprised me how much longer it took as a process. Yeah, I, 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 I totally agree with that idea. I think you're right. It is more of a both have a veto, isn't it? Yeah. But um, yeah, yeah. no, I, I, I totally agree with that idea. And I think the same, what, what I found quite surprising when writing the book is, um, especially with my first draft, I was kind of shocked how much of my first draft, you know, makes it into the book. It's like, you know, you edit it, but then that, that is the book. So um, it's definitely when you have that second person, we have someone else going through it with you. It's a, it's really is a great way to just make it better and kind of refine. And, you know, they can say, and of course I was showing it to my wife and other people as well, but they can, something that makes complete sense in your head, especially with material like, like I've been doing for about six years, it makes a lot of sense to me, but someone might read it for the first time and say, I don't really get this. And that's a little bit frustrating because you're like, well, I've just spent a lot of time, you know, refining this. Um, but ultimately, you, if you're going to send this out to the general public, they need to really get it from like a zero knowledge uh, state on the subject. So um, it's 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 incredibly important. It's quite frustrating, but um, it definitely makes for a better book. My other little um, sort of motto thing that I've really learned from is there's a little saying in improv comedy, mm-hmm. which is a thousand tiny funerals. Oh, yeah, I've heard that. And so what it relates to is, so say like if you're on stage with somebody and you're building the scene with them and it's all completely improv and made up, then someone says, I'm a doctor. And then suddenly you picture, I'm in the hospital and I'm doing this. And then suddenly they say something else that means that actually they're not in a hospital, they're in a house or somewhere else. And so your whole you know, world that you've just created in that, in that one moment in your head of being in the hospital and what your character is and all that, you just have to let it go, you know, and you, it just has to mm-hmm. die. So I think for me, that was always a really um, useful thing in writing as well. Um, just sometimes you'll have an idea that you're really attached to, but then, yeah, you, you run it by your editor or you run it by your co-author. And it's like, I don't quite think this is good enough or it's not funny or it's not, right. it doesn't make the point well enough. And so, yeah, like I've, I've really learned over the years to just be much more uh, comfortable with the idea of just letting ideas go. And even if I'm really attached to something, what matters is, does it work rather than do I love it? That reminds me, I, I had a title prior to us just deciding to go with the same title for the website for the book. I had a title idea and I honestly can't tell you what it was, but I know that it was, it was related to mornings, obviously, but it was a pun uh, related to football, British football. Okay. And, yeah. and considering that the book is, you know, came out in the US here first, I, I thought, I thought it was a very funny title. And like, you know, I told my wife and she was like, that, that isn't good. So <laughs> <laughs> I was holding to be fair, I told her right away, so I was only holding on to that for a few hours, but uh, <laughs> I, I can see where you're going. So you can't tell me what it was because you can't remember, or you can't tell me what it was? I can't remember. No, I sh- I'm, I'm sure if I... I'm sure if, <laughs> I mean, that's probably probably the sign that it wasn't a great one to begin with. <laughs> um, so let me ask you a question just about the, the stories that you've got in the book. So is there a particular person's morning routine that you feel like most resembles yours, or is there one that you feel like is... Uh, most closely aligned with like where you would want to be or you'd want your routine to be? Yeah, that's a great question that I haven't had before, but I, I do have an answer, and that is uh, Bill McNabb. So he is the chairman of the Vanguard Group here in the US, and uh, which is a very large investment firm. And so his is, yeah, his is kind of very simple, but better than mine right now, but I would like to get there. So he kind of, um, he gets to his office between six and se- uh, at 6 a.m., um, but not to work. He gets there and he just kind of uses that office space as kind of his quiet time. So he kind of, he doesn't work work. He doesn't do like his daytime work. He doesn't answer emails, but he kind of just kind of surveys his surroundings and like kind of thinks about what he should be doing for the day ahead, for the week ahead. 
And I think he kind of like meditates on those ideas. And I like that because, you know, so many of us, including myself, we don't give ourselves time to think about what we're doing and why we should be doing yeah. it. And that can happen in actual, you know, formal meditation, but he kind of just does it in the state of having this quiet time. And I could be wrong, but I believe that the, the reason he does that is because a lot of his other time, you know, later in the day is very busy and he's probably in meetings and such. Um, but yeah, I, I, I thought that was a great one. And his, um, yeah, we have pr- a pretty good, a pretty interesting routine with him because it is, it is quite simple. Um, but it's very, very attainable. And um, just looking at his one, he also says that it's it's varied by about 30 minutes in 30 years. So this is something that probably worked for a long time for him. Yeah. Yeah, he was, but just before we, because he was previously until for a very long time, he was the CEO of Vanguard and then he changed to chairman. So that may have changed slightly, but even even during his time as a CEO, he was doing that. He was getting in, uh, getting in at six o'clock and having that that time. So um, yeah, I, I think that's just a great way to, um you know, a great way to think about your life and your work going forward. And did he say what he has on his desk or what he's got in front of him to do that? So presumably he's not checking emails, uh, you know, if you're going to Yeah, I think for the most part, he's just sitting there with his coffee. Oh, he's like scanning the news and such, you know, checking in, checking in on Europe and Asia as you do. Yeah, but um, yeah. yeah, just, you know, just kind of having that more relaxed time. So I, I can't imagine being in his position in terms of the job, but like I imagine he's, uh, I, I imagine he's very busy for the uh, for the rest of the day. I'd also love to know from him if there have been times where, once his coworkers and and you know people he works with closely understand that he's going to be in the office at that time, whether that's been difficult for him to defend. You know, have people been saying, "Well, I know you're around and you're just kind of sitting there," so like, <laughs> you know, because mm-hmm. th- I think that's one of the problems I find a lot when we go in and do. Uh, the workshops that we do on productivity it's it you know people don't value thinking in the same way it's kind of seen as a luxury yeah i imagine in his position he could defend it fine but i i, I totally can see like you know in a lower position that that would be a little bit difficult and uh, i don't know if he does this but i love the idea i think we mentioned in the book of um you know blocking off time in your calendar if, if people have access to your calendar so people can see it yeah blocking off time and you know don't lie per se but like put something obscure in there so it looks like you're doing something, but actually it's just it's just kind of your you time in the morning. I used to do this actually. Uh, I had someone who I was coaching and she really wanted to make time to do a weekly review as part of her work. And every time she would put it in there, she'd put it as, you know, thinking and planning or weekly review. And her staff would basically say, oh, we've got a client coming in. We've got something else that's bigger and more important in their eyes. Mm-hmm. So we're booking over your thinking time. You can do that another time, can't you? Uh, and she was tearing her hair out about this. You know, how can I, how can I just make them realize that this is the most important time in my week? And so what we did was we came up with the idea of just putting in her calendar project magenta. Mm. And so project oh, magenta funny. was a thing that no one else knew what it was <laughs> and everyone was too scared to ask. So like, she just got away with it. That's such a good idea. Yeah. No, that, that, that's fantastic. And that's exactly what you should do. If you, know, if, if you have, the, if you're high enough up in a company, if you can get away with that, then I definitely recommend that. And it, I suppose it's a sad indictment, isn't it, of how our society views <laughs> thinking time and, and even just the idea of solitude and daydreaming. And No, it totally is. And when I, because, you know, up to this point, I've been freelancing and like it's the same with myself if i at the end of the year i always do kind of a yearly review i review the previous year and look up on you know, the year ahead with goals and such and i find it takes me day i'm you know i'm well into january by the time i finish that because i never i never give myself that time i always think well i'll do this instead um and i think part of that is part of that is we're sometimes happy to do something that is 
something that's very well defined, like answering emails or doing a particular task compared to sitting down and thinking. And that, you know, sitting down and thinking is kind of difficult. We don't want to do that, even if we know that we should. Um, so often we're kind of sabotaging, sabotaging, sabotaging the whole idea of it ourselves. And it's so funny, isn't it? How, um, I think particularly in the last few years with just how addictive phones have got, how, how scary people view the idea of just being sat alone with their own thoughts. Yeah, and I have sure. the same thing, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll get really anxious if I know I've got a really long flight or something. If I'm just thinking, thinking to myself, have I got enough podcast downloaded or have I got stuff loaded on, you know, on the iPad or whatever? And it's like, well, actually I could just sit there and think it'd probably be all right. Yeah, no, no offense to me. I, I love podcasts, but I, I fall asleep. If I, if I'm just listening to a podcast, like on a, on a plane or just sat down on a chair, I, I pretty quickly fall asleep. I can't, really? I have to be walking or running or something. Otherwise I'm a, I'm a <laughs> so let's talk about some of the stories in the book. Um, the one that I thought was, was really lovely and I'd never really heard of before was Marie Kondo's idea, which was the first mm-hmm. thing Marie Kondo does in the morning is she opens all of her windows, to let the air in. And I just thought, yes. Hey, what a sort of lovely and so typically Marie Kondo thing, but also, I just know I'd never heard of doing that before and it just makes so much sense. And it's like, it just feels like one of those um, really obvious life lessons. You know, we would be better off with fresh air and that's, it's a really important way to kind of connect with the outside and nature at the earliest opportunity and stuff. It just kind of really resonated with me as something that we generally don't do. Yeah, no, I, I think so. And I, I'm really happy to get her for the book because, you know, I had read her book and uh, now she has a big uh, Netflix show as well, but that was uh that was pretty exciting. Interesting. She was also the only person who answered the questions not in English. Oh, okay. um, so that was kind of fun. So we had to get someone to translate that. But um, yeah, no, it was really, really fascinating to hear from her. And just, I love that she ended uh, the interview. We asked a question about what happens if you fail to follow your routine in the morning. You know, how does that make you feel? And she noted that if she leaves the house untidy in the morning, she's very unhappy for the rest of the day. And I thought that was kind of... <laughs> Kind of, kind of funny given given her line of work. <laughs> There's also a thing in hers which said something like, "Me and my husband bless the shrine of the house" or something. In, uh, you know, to me that was a little bit strange, but I'm sure like our Japanese readers and listeners would mm. understand that a lot more. But um, yeah, no, it, it, it's one of those ideas where it's like it, it's subtle, so it's actually kind of nice. Yeah, um, I would. I'm not sure if I have anything nice enough in my house to do that with, but um, <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure I can get there. Oh, so do you think she's got an actual shrine? I just thought it meant that her house is like a shrine and she's kind of blessing it all around. But you think there's like, so you would have an actual shrine in the house? Honestly, it could be either way. I'm sure if it's a, if it's an actual shrine, a shrine, I'm sure it's not too, uh, not too fussy, but it, it, it could be either way, to be honest. It's a yeah. very difficult, not that I've looked because I want to, I want to help, but it's very difficult to find her house online trying to get ideas, you know? Um, and then I suppose at the other end of the extreme, um, there is, um, uh, general Stanley McChrystal. So, so tell us about him. So he's a retired U S army general and, um, pretty formidable, uh, formidable high, high achiever. Uh, tell us about his routine. So, yeah, I spoke to Sam, Stanley McChrystal. He was the head, well, he, he's currently the retired U S army four-star general. But he was head of the UK and British, uh, he was head of the US and British Army together in 2010 in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I assumed he would be, you know, kind of a scary character to speak to on the phone, but he was actually incredibly nice. He was a very nice person. And um, he spoke about every single morning he gets up at 4 a.m. and he immediately goes out for a run. And then he'll uh, come back after an hour and a half, he'll shower, and then he'll, he'll either go to the gym or he'll go straight into work. And one of the most fascinating things about him, and I actually heard this in a previous podcast he did with uh, Tim Ferriss, 
um, he said that he doesn't eat until dinner time. So I, you know, I wanted to know if this was still true. So I asked him, I told him I'd heard that and I asked him if that is, you know, if that's still true. And he said he will eat, um, if he feels like he really needs to eat, you know, something for breakfast or something for lunch, he'll do it. He won't be silly. He won't just kind of starve himself. But for the most part, he uh, doesn't eat anything till dinner, which is fascinating to, for me. I'm sure he eats a lot at dinner. Mm. But um, no, he was he was an, a very interesting character. And the 4 a.m. start, I'd like to point out to anyone listening to this, that isn't typical. So, you know, if you're trying to start your own, your own morning routine, getting up at 4 a.m. isn't part of it for the vast, vast, yeah, vast majority yeah. of people, including myself. And um, but he was um, yeah, he was he was just a character. So I have a little bit of experience of, of this in that a couple of years ago, I did a blog post which uh, talked about the three C's. So my three C's were create, mm. collaborate, and chill. And the idea really was to set my mobile phone up so that I would I would basically have blockers when I was in that create time. Very kind of similar to right. the, uh, I guess, you know, there's a few references to the Cal Newport uh, Deep Work book. In your book mm-hmm. And um, very similar to that kind of idea of the monk time, you know, just uh, kind of having that, yeah. that time early where you're a bit more unplugged. So on my phone, I won't have access to Google Chrome, to Twitter, to Instagram during that time. And I'd, I'd really figured this out for myself really well, like from having sort of previously found that I was really reliant on my phone and was using it really heavily and I didn't like it, to suddenly having these blockers on. The one I was using, um, still using now, is called Quality Time. And so I was really mm-hmm. excited to share this with people and I put it out there and a few people really loved it and started to adopt it and, and stuff like that as well. But actually the biggest response I got was people just going, you get up at 5am, what? And it was like, they couldn't get over the 5am thing right? to just, actually it's just general advice. I mean, you could do that at any time of day or you could apply the same routine. I actually now get up at 6am for part of the week is kind of my general right. routine. But people, for a while when I was doing the 5am thing and I was really enjoying it, um, people just seemed to like have this kind of sense of alienation about it. I, I don't know if that's something you come across more generally. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think alienation is the word for it. And um, yeah, so this is this is one of those books that's kind of polarizing. Like you're very either very much into the idea or like the whole idea really offends you. And I think it's very similar with speaking about Marie Kondo. We're having a little bit of a, she, there's a little bit of a Marie backlash in the US now where some people love her and she has this new Netflix show, as I mentioned. And some people just, you know, you know, think she's terrible for you know, telling people to throw stuff away. And she has this idea about um, only having a very small number of books. It's the books thing, it's the thing that's all over Twitter at the moment, isn't it? Exactly. It's, um, and I think, yeah, so a lot of people made the jokes about, you know, like having a lot of books isn't a personality, which I thought was <laughs> yeah. But um, <laughs> it's like Marie, Marie, Marie's just telling you she has a small number of books. Yeah. And it's like the whole Sparks Joy. It's like if all of your books Sparks Joy, then, you know, keep them all. You know, it's not... Um, I think there's someone from the Wall Street Journal. He wrote something like, "No, Marie, take your hands off my books." And I was like, <laughs> she's, "She's not coming to be your books." Like, you know, calm down. But um, no, the same point with uh, with my book, um, which hopefully she would keep. I sent her one, <laughs> but um, she, um, uh, to be honest, I'm not sure if it make the cut. She only got like twenty, but <laughs> it, it would be a colorful edition. But um, she. Um, no, back, back to my book. It's some people, they love the idea. And, you know, we, we love those people, but other people need to be kind of pushed in the direction. And, they, you know, when you look at the book, just realize we're not saying, we're not saying get up at 4 a.m. We're not saying meditate. We're not saying work out. We're saying, you know, just read these stories, read these ideas, and then see if any of it works for you. And really don't, you know, don't think we're trying to push you in one direction or another. It really is what works for you. Yeah. And we, we know in the conclusion 
you know, experiment with things, you know, experiment with meditation. If you want experiment with working out, experiment with going to bed a little bit earlier and you will see if that, you know, you'll see if you enjoy that very quickly. And if you don't enjoy it, just, just don't do it anymore. But, um, I, I think it's definitely, unlike many books, and this is something we did on purpose, we really didn't want it to be too prescriptive. So there are some books that say, you know, you definitely have to get up at 5 a.m. You know, there's no other way. And this isn't, this isn't to make fun of your point at all, but like some of the books say you have to get up at 5 a.m. That is the perfect time to get up. And it's like, of course that isn't the perfect time to get up for so many people. You know, people have different needs. People need to get kids at school at different times. It just, you can't have this be all end all. So we really want to just be like, here are some ideas, try them out. Maybe they'll work, maybe they won't, but we really hope you get something from it. Yeah. And I guess, you know, I'm, I'm probably slightly in that cynical camp too, in the, in a slightly different way, which is that I, so I quite enjoy designing a routine and I like having it there as a, so I literally have it. I have a, a sort of a word document table thing. Ah, that yeah. is like stuck to uh, the little bookcase section next to my desk that literally has like every day and like what like what my routine is going to look like on every day mm-hmm. but then my work is so sort of strange in terms of its schedule <laughs> that like so for example like this week i was in london uh, on monday night this week and then thursday i'm driving to oxford and i'm going to be there all day until really late and then back right and so when i have things like that just it doesn't just affect the routine for those days, but it probably affects the routine for a couple of the other days. Right, totally. Yeah. So there will be often there'll be often a week where I don't actually have a routine at all. So I have a routine written down, but I'm but I'm very comfortable with the freewheeling away from it. Do you know what I mean? I do totally. And we we speak in the book. Uh, we have a question we ask every single person. This is in the book and on the website. Uh, we ask, you know, what do you do when you're traveling? Do you stick to the routine? Do you stick to parts of it? Do you completely let it go? And a lot of people say they'll try hard to stick to certain parts. So if they, if they always work out in the morning, maybe they always go running around their town in the morning, but instead of they're staying in a hotel room, they'll just go to the gym and do the treadmill. So these are the small things people try and do, uh, similar, uh, try and do similarly. But at the same time, we do mention, you know, if you're traveling, if it's just for a couple of days, two or three days, and you just, you know, you just can't get to your routine. If it's just too busy, if you're traveling for a very important meeting, a very important conference, what we say is just kind of get get a lot of sleep, make sure you're getting enough sleep, but at the same time, don't worry about your routine. You know, try it out if you can, but just put it to the side if you have to, and then when you get back, just get right back to it. But don't don't let it kind of ruin your experience of where you are. And of course, you know, it'd be great if we could all take our routines everywhere, but that's not always gonna happen. So just really kind of be kind to yourself. Just allow yourself that, uh, you know, forgive yourself and uh, just get back to it when you're at home. Yeah, I also found myself getting really jealous of some of the people in the book who could function really well on five or six hours sleep because I'm just not one of those people at all. So that, yeah, that's that's another, I'm glad you brought that up because, um, yeah, so people, you have a whole chapter on sleep in the book and we we do bring up the notion that people can sleep, you know, people can, you know, function well on five to six hours. And of course, new parents, often have to function on this amount of sleep or less. Um, but of course, they would argue that they're certainly not functioning well. And there is this idea that this, uh, the whole, you know, the short sleepers that really can get by. And, you know, people say Margaret Thatcher was one. Um, and that, that could be true. But it's, it's such a small percentage of people who can get by as in like, you know, function as function as we do after eight or nine hours um, on five or six. And it's such a small percentage that we often say, you know, you, if you think that is you, it most certainly is not. Mm, yeah. And um, so, you know, we, we recommend the typical you know, seven to nine hours. You may be at the higher end of that. So if we say seven to nine, and you're like, okay, I'll start getting seven. You still might be quite sleepy. And I'm, I'm pretty tired after just seven hours of sleep. I need at least yeah. eight, maybe eight and a half. 
And I never get that much, but I can get as close as I can. And the whole, the kind of myth about catching up on sleep on the weekend, of course, you can catch up on, on a little bit, but you're kind of, you know, on Saturday morning, for example, you're probably only catching up on a little bit of Friday sleep. You can never catch up on that lost sleep. And it's just, yeah. Have you, have we read that, um, that recent book, uh, Matthew Walker, why we sleep? No. Yeah. So he's, he's great. He's, he's a British, uh, sleep doctor. He, he lives in Berkeley. So just around the corner from me. Um, but basically it's, it's a really great study just about how basically, you know, every single, every single chapter is like, you're going to die, um, <laughs> because you're not getting enough sleep and which is fantastic. It's, uh, it's really, I, I've, I've been into sleep for a long time, which is why I put a big portion of the book towards sleep. Um, but reading that, you, you really get an idea of how important it is. Pretty much, they say every single part of your body, every single disease, everything that could go wrong with you can go more wrong the less sleep mm. you get. Um, so just it, getting as much sleep as possible is so important. I'll probably take a nap after this, to be honest. <laughs> I was a little bit worried about not, uh, not hearing my alarm this morning. But, um, yeah, no, it's, it's just such a, such a huge part of the book and what we do. And actually, before we, before we outlined the book in this chapter format, we were going to have a whole, a whole third of the book was going to be devoted towards sleep. But uh, we knew that we knew that Matthew Walker book was coming out and we knew Ariana Huffington has written a lot about sleep. So we decided more, you know, we decided to not focus as much yeah. on that, but um, I would have happily, you know, put many, many, many more chapters towards sleep. It's such a huge and important part of having a good morning routine. And also sleep, not necessarily always being something that just happens overnight. Right. So do you nap? Are you a kind of nap person during the day? as well as sort of having done a podcast and then going back to bed. <laughs> yeah. So I'm currently, I'm currently freelancing. So I do, if I need to, for sure. And like, like I think today might be one of those days. Um, but I, I do appreciate that um, many people can't do that. And some, some businesses, some companies, especially here in kind of Silicon Valley, uh, they are moving towards that. Like I know the Huffington Post and Thrive Global, both of which uh, are in Huffington's companies, of course, they are doing the whole nap pod yeah. idea. And so it's Google. But at the same time, I recognize that most uh, most businesses are pretty much never going to jump on that idea. So I know that it is impossible for most people. So I think it is great if you can, if you can get that time in. I personally, if I if I take a nap, I'll take a nap for 20 yeah. minutes or 22 minutes just to give myself a couple minutes to fall asleep. Um, but I, I, I do think for the most part, that really isn't isn't a realistic thing that you're able to do so i think you just need really need to focus on getting enough sleep at night have you come across the dan pink nappuccino thing <laughs> oh yes i have yeah the idea of having a having a cappuccino having some coffee and then kind of using that to wake you up yeah so you do you drink the coffee just as you're going to have a nap just as you sort of like so it's like two in the afternoon you're about to have a nap right, right. you drink the espresso really quickly or whatever or a cappuccino or whatever and then you close your eyes and the idea is that's how long it takes the caffeine to kick back in. So it's like 20, 25 minutes. Oh my God, that's funny. I love a good pun. So yeah. I'll write that down. <laughs> <laughs> and I think part of the thing with the whole sleep and, you know, 5 a.m. starts and 4 a.m. starts, I'm, I'm sure I read a thing a year or so ago that was basically decrying this idea that every every few years, it seems like that hour that the entrepreneurs get up just gets an hour shorter, right? So like it used to be get up at 6am, then it was get up at 5am and now it's get up at 4am. And, you know, someone was kind of saying in this article, when is this going to end? You know, people are going to be getting up at, at ridiculous o'clock. And um, I, I don't know if you saw the thing, um, uh, Mark Wahlberg on, uh, uh, it was on the BBC website, and I'm sure it was on loads of other places, but just about his routine that he put on Instagram, uh, where he gets up at 2.30 a.m. Yeah, so it's pretty, I, I mean, I couldn't do that. And like, it, it's interesting looking at it. So um, I'm sure you'll probably include the link in the note, in the show notes, but it, it, it's fascinating looking at it because you can see 
I, I do love how he, you know, he writes everything down. He has his time when he does stuff. And it, it reminds me in a small way of like Benjamin Franklin's routine. You know, he wrote that down. Um, so it, it's fascinating to see. I mean, I couldn't do that, but like, you know, he goes to bed at 7.30, I see, 7.30 p.m. Yeah. So I can see how he's getting enough sleep, pretty much. I guess that is uh, seven hours, so maybe he could do a little more. But he's getting he's getting basically enough sleep. He's just living in a different time zone to the rest of the people in his country, isn't he, basically? Like. Yeah, he's just he's just shifted it. I don't know where he lives. I'm probably in L.A. But um, yeah, he's, he's um, yeah, as you say, it's just it's a little bit of a shift. I can see how that that sort of thing is going to drive people crazy because it's almost seen as like an indictment of them. But that really isn't the case. Of course, he's an actor, so he kind of, uh, he can make his own hours for the most part. And that that's what he's chosen to do. So um, all the power to him. Yeah, for sure. I wanted to ask you more generally about nutrition, but the thing in the Mark Wahlberg thing, as well as how much he's, uh, how much he's working out and how early he's getting up is how much he's eating. So on this thing, it says he starts out with steel oats, blueberries and peanut butter for breakfast then I have a protein shake, three turkey burgers, five pieces of sweet potato at about 5.30 in the morning. <laughs> at 8 o'clock, I have 10 turkey meatballs. At 10.30 a.m., I have a grilled chicken salad with two hard-boiled eggs, olives, avocado, cucumber, tomato, lettuce. <laughs> this is all in the morning, right? So at 1 o'clock, I have a New York steak with green peppers. <laughs> 3.30 p.m., I have grilled chicken with bok choy. And then at 5 or 6 p.m., I have a beautiful piece of halibut or cod or sea bass with some vegetables, oh maybe some sautéed potatoes and bok choy. I have to say, it all sounds delicious. Yeah, and then he's, yeah, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's eating well. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I have a lot of aquahydrate during the day. What's aquahydrate, you know? I, I don't know what that is. I, I imagine it's probably a brand uh, that I, I haven't come across yet. <laughs> Rehydration salt thing or something. Yeah. But, I mean, that feels like a lot of food, right? I mean, it, obviously he's working out and feeding <laughs> his muscles, but uh, yeah. that's that making me quite hungry to, to hear it. But yeah, no, that, that, yeah. I mean, if he'd have gone to that fire festival that the Netflix documentary has been on, like he wouldn't have survived <laughs> with, uh, where, you know, where the, the food was running out and he would, he'd say, like, where's my third round of turkey for the morning uh, yeah I, I think yeah i don't i don't think that will, would have worked for him but just in the in all the different interviews that you've done what has what has struck you about food and nutrition through that i, I know just reading the book one of the things that really interested me was how many people are starting the day with water and just having that sort of pint of right. water in the morning to rehydrate and i think there's there's loads of science behind that isn't there but like is there stuff that really really uh, stuck out for you in terms of food and nutrition and, and, and that kind of side of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we didn't touch upon science at all. Well, we, we, we cited studies, but we didn't do anything ourselves uh, because we're not scientists, but like a lot of people, as you mentioned, speak of, uh, spoke about having water first thing as their first drink. And that's where my American twang comes out. <laughs> water. But, um, so that, that, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's one. I, I don't know. I've naturally gone that way, but um, yeah, no, no, so they have water right away. And uh, that, that did come up time and time again. And people, people sometimes ask me in interviews, you know, should you eat breakfast? Should you eat breakfast first thing? And I would say, of course, that is just, again, that is just, if you want to eat breakfast, eat breakfast. Uh, the, I'd say the majority of the people we spoke with do eat breakfast. The majority of people aren't waiting until dinner, like selling the yeah. crystal to eat. Um, but it, 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 we got, we got such a wide range. And I would definitely say Mark Wahlberg's um, meals throughout the day were very healthy for the most part people we spoke with are eating healthy. Um, but I think part of that is self-selecting, you know, if they, if they agree to an interview about their morning routine and about, you know, a lot of it is exercise habits, they probably are also eating healthy. Um, but of course at the same time, that's, you know, that's good for you. That's going to help you have the energy you need to get throughout the day. So, um, there's definitely a lot to take from the ideas. That yeah. 
And I think, you know, it sort of comes back to that whole thing about how much of uh, what Mark Wahlberg's sharing there or how much of the stuff that people would share is always their kind of the Instagram version of them versus like the real version of them too. And like, mm. you know, I, I eat very healthily, but then there'll be days where I have a big bar of chocolate and I have a, you know, bread of toast or like, it, you know, it kind of goes a bit off the rails or whatever. Um, so I think there's, there's often going to be those exceptions, right? Yeah, for sure. And I would definitely say to anyone, anyone who thinks these, you know, routines might not, not by, not, uh, may not be accurate. I would argue that point, but I would definitely say a lot of them, I'm sure, are like the idealized uh, version of people's routines. Yeah. So they may not, they, they try to do it every single day, but maybe they only, you know, do four out of five in a weekday. Um, but I would, it's interesting. A lot of the people we spoke to that we have, um, interviewed, they would say after doing, you know, after saying what they do, they kind of were more motivated to make sure they really do do that every day or they may write it down and put it on the fridge, kind of how you write yours down. Um, so I think just the, the act of writing it down is, is very good to actually push you in that direction. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm, I, I don't think anyone's lying. I think everyone is just really, um, if they're exaggerating at all, it's just, it's like that idealized routine. Um, but yeah, like for, for example, I typically meditate for about 10, 15 minutes in the morning and then I'll do like some, uh, what do you say in British? Uh, star jumps. It's jumping jacks in America. I'm like all over the place. But I'll do some star jumps. I'll do some push-ups. But I, you know, I can promise you I did not do those before this interview this morning. <laughs> and I'm more likely to nap than I am to do those afterwards. So, you know, it, it, it changes every day depending kind of, as you said, with your schedule. It really, um, you really kind of have to fit your life into it. Yeah. And even though a morning routine is incredibly important, um, I was actually, where was I? I was in New Orleans for a um, conference uh, a few months ago. And people, it was kind of like an office hours kind of situation where people booked an appointment with me and came up to me and asked how I could improve their morning routine. And so, so often, so many, to be fair, they were at a conference in New Orleans, but many of them look quite tired. And I said to them, I was like, okay, so how many hours of sleep do you get? Typically a night, not just now, but like during the weekday. And a lot of them would say to me, you know, five, five and a half, six hours of sleep. And I immediately just, you know, I said to them, I was like, I can help you come up with ideas to do in your morning to put into your morning routine. But if you're not getting enough sleep, if you're only getting five, six hours of sleep, this is, you know, this is kind of pointless. You're just going to be sleepy throughout your morning routine. You'll be sleepy throughout the day. And you know, like I said, you're going to barely be able to catch up on the weekend. So I would definitely say the most important thing really is just to focus on the sleep. Because once you get that down, once you're really feeling rested in the morning, um, it's just going to be so much easier to form a morning routine. And we all, we all know that feeling in the morning when you wake up after a good night's sleep. And the fact that that feels so good is kind of, it's it kind of to our detriment because it shows how infrequently it happens. Um, so yeah, I just really harp on a lot about sleep because I think it's so important. Massively. Um, and just, I suppose that maybe leads us quite neatly on to looking at some statistics. I love this. So towards the back of the book, you've just broken down some stats to give people kind of averages of mm. all the people you've interviewed. So you've got more than 300 people. 53% of them are male, 47% are female. And then you've just got stats, which I just think is one of those things where it's almost like a hidden world, isn't it? Like so much <laughs> of the morning routine, it happens in the most private room of most people's houses. And it's kind of, it's a very private part of the day versus the public persona, isn't it? So when you've got people like Marie Kondo and Ariana Huffington and, and all the, all, all these uh, people being interviewed about it, it's, it, they, they are kind of lifting the lid uh on what you know what's happening like in in the thing that's behind the scenes most of the time they are and it's um like we we say in the back of the book and conclusion of the acknowledgement we thank people for that because it is kind of an intimate yeah. time of day and quite a, you know quite a lot of people we asked for an interview said no 
And I'm sure part of that reason is just, you know, not wanting to divulge that. Not, not that it's anything weird, but it's a little bit like almost like having a camera crew in your house. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so that, that would be a good video version. I'm going to have to look into that. So I think what you've got here is some, some, some gold dust statistics that, that is quite hard for people to get hold of anywhere else. But, um, yeah. Well, you've got uh, seven hours, 29 minutes is the average sleep time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The average waking up time was earlier than I expected, actually. Six, 6.24 a.m. Although, do you think that's because you've got like, a few generals and people who are getting up at four that are just <laughs> dragging it, dragging it down a little bit too much. It could be because in, in the book, uh, McChrystal's the only one who gets up at four. Um, but the, the uh, statistics, they come from our whole archive of like, I'm not sure when, how many we have when the book was published, but you can also go on to, uh, if you go to my slash statistics, that is the most updated version. And that updates every single week as oh, nice. basically as we, <laughs> as we edit a new routine, we have this little side note where we just put in that data and then, you know, it just updates ever so slightly. Like if you had a new routine, maybe the wake up mm. time will change by a minute or something like That's that. Um, so you can see how that changes. It's actually the sleep average is still the same after 317 routines at seven yeah. hours and 29 minutes. But what, what is fascinating, we found that, um, uh, this data and we're, you know, we're currently over 300. I think even when we're at 200, it was shockingly similar to like the Fitbit and the jawbone data. Uh, they often publish, you know, their averages for all of their users, mm. and it's typically seven hours, twenty nine minutes, uh, you know, six twenty five ish or six twenty four. It's um, it's always like a minute or two different, and um, so yeah, I found that I found that pretty interesting. But I'm glad that it kind of uh, verified that our statistics are, you know, correct and going in the right direction. Wow, a couple of the ones that were quite interesting for me was seventy um, percent of people use an alarm to wake up. Yes, and this is the bit that I think is gold. Is that thirty three percent of people use the snooze? So I think that's so that's like so reassuring for everybody, isn't it? They're like a third of these high achievers are using the snooze function on their phone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we we talk in the book. We we recommend not using it if unless you unless you love it, you know, unless it's something you enjoy. We recommend not lose, using it, but that you know that doesn't stop people from using it. And in terms of the alarm, um, 70 percent. That's um, yeah. Every time every time people say that they use an alarm, but they don't. They typically wake up before it. Uh, wake up before it. We always just you know count that as someone using an alarm because without it you could oversleep. Right. Um, yeah. So like okay. I said, it's yeah, more yeah. about hedging against oversleeping. So yeah, like I, I can I can hope I would wake up at seven thirty without an alarm, but you know depending on how late I went to bed, that might not always be true. The other one that I thought was quite interesting is um fifty four percent of people meditate, and I wonder if that is a slightly self selecting thing. So the fact that you're interviewing high achievers and uh, you know, people who are very a type and focused on their work and career and that kind of thing they've they've kind of heard it enough that meditation's important but that feels like a very high number compared to maybe like the average population do you think i i completely agree i i think that, that that's self-selecting I, i'm sure the average population of meditators you know across the world is mm. dramatically increasing uh you know with all these apps and everything we interview uh michael acton smith who's yeah. another he's another brit he lives here in san francisco and he um he has the calm. He's the CEO. Or I think he's, he's definitely the co-founder of the uh, calm app, which is a great one. Uh, and of course the headspace, that guy's British and that's also yeah. really popular here. So it's, um, it, it's gaining in popularity, but in terms of how many people on our website meditate, I would say that's very much uh, self-selecting. And the last thing I was going to ask you about is uh, obviously as a, as a Brit uh, over there on the West coast, coast of America, like do you notice a difference in the sort of West Coast attitude to these things versus a British attitude versus maybe ev- everywhere else in America? Like, wh- what were your observations about uh, how that might sort of culturally be different? Yeah, so I, I haven't lived anywhere else in the US. It's the only place I've lived. 
uh, here, but it's very, um, I lived in London for a long time and I lived, um, I lived in Spain for a little bit as well, but, um, it's very, um, yeah, very forward thinking here. Very, um, just like the whole idea of like, you know, my morning routine and like the whole exercise and stuff. It's very much, um, it's, it's just a very exciting topic here. And I think I mentioned to you before the show, this is just my second British interview. Um, not, not for lack of trying, although I, I haven't, I haven't been uh, pushing as much as the US ones, but it's, um, very much something that they get excited about. Not to say that British people don't or people from other countries, but it's, um, it's a, it's a very encouraging and, um, uh, you know, uplifting kind of atmosphere here. And like I said, I haven't lived other places, so I can't really, um, relate it like that. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to be here. And, uh, <laughs> my parents are less happy, but uh, <laughs> I'm very happy to be here. Um, but yeah, it, it's, 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 it's a pretty good, it's a pretty good place. And you took talking before about the sort of cynicism that people might feel or, or, or kind of that sense of alienation that people might feel when they hear someone else's routine. Right. Do you think that's more of a British thing than? than an American thing. I mean, we, we've definitely had it. Like I, I wrote something for the New York times, um, a couple of months ago, which was a great experience, but like seeing uh, they'll, they'll reshare it every now and then they reshare it a few days ago and seeing the comments on Facebook. I'm like, I don't know. I feel like <laughs> I feel like we're getting quite a lot of cynicism from the US <laughs> as well. But, um, <laughs> but I, I mean, I, I would say to an extent, yes, I would, I would definitely, um, if we, if we ever occasionally have a, have a, you know, piece, we had something that, it was interesting. The Financial Times wrote a really nice piece about us, um, you know, promoting the book, saying the book was great, and then someone else from the Financial Team uh, Times kind of wrote a teardown piece. I was like, "Wow!" <laughs> so I guess you two didn't chat, um, or, or one of them loved it and the other one hated it, and they wanted to get both uh, viewpoints out. So, um, but I, I would say it's a little bit more in the UK, and you know, me, me having lived there and growing up there for so long, I can kind of see it, and I'm not at all surprised. Um, but I would say, um, yeah, I would say it's a healthy cynicism, though. It's not like, you know, it's just tearing stuff down. Um, and I definitely, I, th- I think back, back to Marie again, but like, you know, you see the idea and you don't read the book, you don't watch the TV show and you kind of, you have the idea of what something is without really knowing what it is. Yeah. And so when, when people do read our book, like it's very, um, it's very nice to see like, you know, people so, so often nowadays with Instagram, you know, people will tag me on Instagram with a picture of the book and they're reading it and just say these nice things. And that's, you know, that's incredibly pleasing. Um, and every now and then you see a bad one on, on, on Amazon, but, uh, quite funny. I think I had a pretty bad one on Amazon.co.uk. <laughs> and, um, I think somebody said, save the money and buy a nice bag of coffee instead. But I, I appreciated that because it was funny, you know? <laughs> What's your attitude to reading the comments generally? It sounds like you, you do engage with that and, you know, you, you, you look at it on Facebook. And yeah. Kind of- no, it's like, like, yeah, with the, yeah, with the new, you know, it, it, whenever there's, so that's the thing when, when you, when you reach a bigger audience, like back with the New York times again, you will get people who aren't even remotely into this space, you know? So before that, if I was like writing something on uh, quartz or I don't know, like some productivity blog or on a productivity podcast like this, the comments are going to be very positive. You know, people, it's very much the space, but when you go into the wider world and when you go to the New York times and you just put on, a, you just put, you're just being shared by the New York times account, you know, several million people, follow that and so the responses this isn't you know this isn't the space people are in so you're going to get bad responses i kind of um i kind of have to read it all and then my wife is like literally physically <laughs> taking my computer away from me um but i have to say also it's kind of interesting what i said to her one day i said to her if, if i'm ever having a good day 
I just go on Goodreads and like read the one star reviews. <laughs> that's a great way to bring me down. But it, it, it's definitely, it's definitely one of those situations where, you know, you'll scroll past like four or five, five star reviews and you're like not interested in reading those. Yeah. You just want to read the one star review. Um, and there's definitely, the thing is, there is always, okay, that's not true. There's often something positive to take from, you know, these, these scathing reviews. Often it does give you good ideas of what you did do wrong. Sometimes it's, it's just someone being a dick, to be honest. Um, like, uh, yeah, there's, you'll definitely see the ones on Amazon. You'll get like a one star review with no real words. And then you'll go in there and just like, oh, they're just one star reviewing everything. So that's stuff like that's a little bit disappointing, but there's not much you can do about it. um, Why are they doing that? I I don't know. You know, you report them and all, but you know, that's Amazon aren't really that interested in dealing with that. But, um, it's, uh, yeah, that, that, you know, that, that's just how it is. But once again, you just, you just kind of have to think about the bigger picture and think about the good reviews and um, definitely think about the challenging ones, the ones that say what you could do better. But don't, uh, try not to dwell on the one stars, but it's definitely something that um, I think we're natured to really want, really want to get into. It's so hard. And I sort of asked that question because I didn't read any reviews on Amazon for probably about three years. And then... Oh, wow. I do not have that. Uh, I, well, I think it's slightly better for me because I, I only write books. You're, you're writing articles that are going out there all the time, right? So you just, there's a lot more mm-hmm. for people to comment on. Mm-hmm. Whereas all I have to do is just, if I'm on, and I do end up on my Amazon page quite a lot because I have to send links to people and all that sort of stuff. But I'll just make sure that I keep my eyes towards the top of the page right. and then just send the link and I'm gone. But then I stumbled across it uh, just before Christmas and it really affected me. <laughs> so again, I was like, oh, no. <laughs> I, I think I just have a really thin skin for these things. But I, I like exactly like you were saying, I was not interested at all in the five star reviews or the four star reviews. And then for me, it was just like reading two or three really miserable one star reviews. And it like really knocked me for like a few days, actually. Like it was, I, I found it quite affecting. I, it's, it's one of those things, isn't it, that I wonder if anyone ever gets toasty to the point where they're thick skinned about it and it doesn't affect them at all. Yeah. I think, you know, like, you know, very famous people on Twitter and that, I think they just, you know, can't check their mentions and can't check stuff like that because it's just yeah. overwhelmingly negative. And it's, uh, no, it's difficult. I, I used to think I was a lot more uh, thick skinned than I am, <laughs> but, um, no, it, 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 it it's, it's a interesting experience. So, and I think I, I have a Google alert, um, you know, for my name just to see yeah. if I've been uh, yeah. put in anything, which sounds pretentious, but, you know, it's good to, it's good to see what's coming up. And, um, there was a, about a month or two ago, uh, based off the New York times thing, uh, Jezebel, you know, that website, they, um, yeah. uh, they, they, you know, they, they wrote basically a hit piece on me based off the New York times. Oh, piece. Wow. Yeah. I was like, I don't think I'm, I'm famous enough. For this. I'm like, Why you <laughs> what is this? And it, I mentioned it to my wife cause she also has the same alert and she was like, Oh yeah, I was hoping you hadn't seen that. Oh. <laughs> of course I had to read the whole thing, but, uh, yeah, it's, it, 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 it's just, it, it's what happens when like you just get a slightly bigger audience. Um, but that, 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 that's, you know, that's all part of it. I think it's also, you have to take it with that sense of, um, the way, the way Seth Godin talks about it being, you know, your lizard brain is riled and, and all of that and, and basically says, you know, where, where you push things to those kind of extremes and where, where the lizard brain doesn't want you to go is usually where, you start to make change and good things happen. So it's a kind of similar thing, isn't it? If if you're annoying somebody, you're probably also pleasing somebody else to equal measure. So better than being bland in the middle. Like I I occasionally write Amazon reviews. Like I, I I sometimes think of it as like a civic duty, you know, particularly if I like, I I don't really write. I, I, I don't think I ever give one or two star reviews. Um, but I, I definitely, there's so many people who 
enjoy your book and enjoy books, but don't review it and don't, you know, don't ever share it. They just, you know, they just enjoy it and they, they have no obligation to review it or share it. And I think you just have to think about, think about that and, you know, Hope, hope that that is a greater number than the people who uh, <laughs> have scathing things to say. For sure. Um, this is turning into a really great um, author's uh, sort of uh, counselling session between the two of us, which I'm really loving. <laughs> but it's probably quite a good point to start to draw things to a close. So just before we um, uh, sign off, uh, just tell everybody how they can find you and the book and tell us what you're up to next. Yeah, so you can you, if you go on to uh, my one. Actually, I think that just links the uh, the US one. So if you just go on to Amazon.co.uk, you can just search my morning routine or search for my name, and you'll find it there. Um, it's in Waterstones, as my my mum points out. She's like, she's <laughs> never not found it in Waterstones. She's very pleased about that. I pointed out that could be because it's not selling, but no, that's I'm sure that's not the case. But um, yeah, uh, W. Smith, uh, places like that, and you know, a lot of online places. And you can find me at uh, BenjaminSpall.com. And on Twitter and Instagram at, at Benjamin Spall. And in terms of what I'm working on next, I'm just I'm just trying to promote this book, trying to get this book out there, trying to um, you know promote the ideas that you know you can have a morning routine, but it doesn't need to be stiff. It doesn't need to be five o'clock every morning. You can really change and figure out what works for you, and change you know change in small amounts without having to uh, go all in on one thing or another. Nice. Well, it's a great book, and um, hopefully people will uh, go and grab a copy of it, and I'm sure it's going to help loads of people. Uh, and I'm going to leave you now to go back and have your nap and uh, finish the rest of your morning routine today. I think I will. Nap, nap, then breakfast. Cool. Thanks, Ben. Lovely chatting. So thanks again to Ben for being on the show. Real pleasure to do that one. And uh, certainly just a topic that I learned loads just by reading that book. So go and get the book, My Morning Routine. It's out in the UK and the US and everywhere else pretty much in the world. Um, that is it for this week. Thanks also to Mark Stedman, my producer on the show, and also to Think Productive, our sponsors for the show. If you want to find out about productivity workshops for your company, just go to thinkproductive.com. And once again, if you want to join us for the masterclass, I'm doing a personal masterclass. It's the Graham Got Productivity Masterclass, the 20th of March. It's at the Business Design Center in Islington. Tickets on Eventbrite or with the show notes at getbeyondbusy.com. Check it out there. See you in two weeks' time. Bye for now. This podcast is produced by Podient. To find out more, visit podiantproductions.com.